Welcome back to the Sim Geeks podcast. We are your hosts, William Belk and David Shabalak. Today we have a special guest, and we're going to be jumping into needs assessments. But before we get there, David, what have you been up to, man? I have had a large period of travel, but now for the last couple of weeks, I'm at home. So I'm working on a few projects that are non-SIM related, but it's fun because I'm getting to do some stuff that I don't normally get to do. I've had a pressure pot for Oh, good few years now, and I finally got that running, and I'm making lenses for an old sign and just some fun stuff. What have you been up to? A lot of travel work-wise, but slowly starting to kind of get better. In fact, it's actually slowed down significantly over the next couple of months. I think I've only got three or four trips I have to make. And then really the right now in the planning stages of building a new simulation center in Atlanta. So that's my next big project as I bury the one that we're on now. How much snow have you had already in Montana? You know, it's come in bursts. So, I mean, I would say total, we might be close to a foot for the year. You know, we melted off a few inches and then we got six inches a different time. And it's actually snowing outside right now. So I don't, I don't know exactly what this is going to accumulate to, but it's snowing at a pace where the sidewalks are staying relatively clear, where you're able to, to sweep it off and, and shovel it off. And then it warms up enough that the snow stays on the grass, but the roads are kind of clearing up. Sidewalks and driveways are clearing up and it's just really piling up on grass and dirt and other places. We're not in the full swing of winter yet. In fact, I'm actually surprised we haven't had more snow by now. We normally have, but we're, we're getting there. So today we've got a special guest that's going to be joining us. So we're going to be talking about needs assessments, what they are, why we need them, and especially where they fit into simulation. But Elizabeth Horsley is going to come on and talk to us about that. So Elizabeth, why don't you give us your background, let us know who you are, where you came from, and all those things. All right. It is so great to be here with you guys today. So I am Elizabeth Horsley, and I am currently the Director of Simulation at the Brooklyn Hospital Center in Brooklyn, New York. You might notice I say a few words a little funny, like out and about and things like that. I might drop an A here and there because I am indeed Canadian. So like many people in simulation, I fell into this. I got thinking about this today. I don't think, I think there's very few of us, if any, who are like, yeah, I want to be a simulationist when I grow up. You know, that might come, but right now we still, most people have a story where they accidentally got handed this portfolio. Here you go. So I was, I began my healthcare career as an OR nurse around 30 years ago. And then eventually in 2003, made my way into undergraduate nursing education. From there, 2004, 2005, the province of Ontario funded every program of nursing to develop and implement some form of simulation program. At the time, the chair of our department, she said, hey, why don't you take this on? So I did. That was when I got started, 04, 05. And oh my goodness, when I think back now, if I could do that over again, remember everybody had to have this like recording studio, whether you knew what you were doing with it or not, right? And I remember I bought this security system with a bunch of views of cameras. It took about 40 minutes to burn a remotely watchable disc. And in hindsight, you're like, hey, what was I thinking? And if only I had that 50 grand back. Again, like most of us, I think we could have a really fascinating show of things you did in 2006 that you wouldn't do now. I worked along in nursing education as a one-woman show for a number of years. I, you know, I was trying to keep up with some literature and I was going to conferences and I was trying to do things, but I never seemed to be getting that aha. I never seemed to be getting what I was seeing other people, what was happening. So around 2014, I was really very discouraged. And at that point, I just went through this malaise of, you know what, I'm just going to sit here for the rest of my career and push this button 
to make sim man desaturate. And that's what I'll do. Well, if you've ever gone through something like that, for most of us, it doesn't last very long because eventually you need more. So I remember this one particular day, it was sort of late winter, early spring of 2014. And I got this email came across my desk and to this day, I could have sworn it was one of those simulation newsletters. It could have been an early iteration of healthy simulation or maybe a precursor to that. I don't remember, but it was some kind of newsletter came across my desk. To this day, I could have sworn I'd unsubscribed to all of them when I was going through my funky phase, right? So I had no idea where it came from. And it was a master's degree in simulation program. And I went, hmm, well, that looks interesting. So then I thought, well, okay. And then I looked, it says Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I thought, well, okay, what good's that going to do me up here in Vineland, Ontario? Then I looked closer and it was online. So as I say, online before online was cool. It was online program, two years, three one-week blocks in Philadelphia. And as I say, as I've done most things in my life, I just barreled right in without a whole lot of thought got my applications together, got everything in. And in August of 2014, I started that program. To this day, it has been the greatest educational or professional experience of my life. It just turned everything around for me. So, and I would be remiss if I did not say right now, that is where I met Matt Charnetsky. So we were classmates in that first graduating class from the Drexel program. So fast forward to 2017, I ended up getting recruited down here to the Brooklyn Hospital Center. And what happened is we got a new chief of medicine here and he decided he wanted some simulation in the hospital. He had worked in Philadelphia with Sharon Griswold, who was the director of our Drexel program. He called her and he said, I just want one of your graduates. Well, there were six in the class. Four people had been sponsored by their employer. That was Matt's Kazakhstan phase. So he wasn't here, left me. So she phoned me at home and she said, would you ever consider moving? And as it would happen, my oldest son was at university. My younger son was getting ready to do his grade 11 year abroad. So there was no kids on the home front. And my husband and I were just a year in New York City. Ah, how bad could that be? And here we are going on six years later now. So I, I flew down here had a look around. It was kind of a bit of an abandoned room with a lot of random pieces of stuff. And, but I felt like it was a fit and I could do a lot. And it's been here. It's been wonderful. I've done everything from setting up skill training to code blues. I'm doing things with nursing education, a lot of things around patient experience. So, you know, it's been great. And I've been able to become involved. I've been involved in the simulation world. I like that I've had some academic experience and now the clinical experience. So here I am with you guys today. So Elizabeth, one of the things that we always do is ask before someone comes on is, you know, what is it that you're going to bring to our audience? What is that you have that you think people need to hear in the simulation community? Okay. Uh, and I think pretty quickly and without hesitation, you jump straight to that you know, needs assessment or why we need needs assessments in simulation. Uh, so why don't you give us just a quick rundown on exactly what it is you mean by needs assessment, why we should be doing them and where we can get started, especially if we're looking from some, a program that maybe doesn't do them at all, where we might start looking for the easiest way to deploy that. And I'm going to interject two seconds here because, yeah, that was one of those things that she and I met online, like we do a lot of our people. 
And we kept bellowing back and forth the words needs assessment back and forth in a lot of different forums. And that's kind of how we met. And then we met in person at the Anaxel Conference in Wisconsin, and we quickly bonded over needs assessments so that when this topic came up, I said, I know somebody. All right. Well, you know, I'm thinking about the last while and as I've been teaching more and more courses, and I guess to me, it just seemed I just started talking more and more about needs assessment, because when people were saying issues they were having or things that weren't going right, or when I think back on my own experiences, and I can trace it back to a lack of a proper needs assessment, I think for the last couple of years, COVID and everything, it seemed like everything we were talking about in the simulation world was virtual, virtual, and whatever other words you want to use for virtual, that's, but I think now I'm also seeing a people who really want to do high quality simulation. Let's do it well. Let's do it properly. It's an expensive proposition between your equipment, between your people. Let's maximize it, right? So what you're telling me is we don't just do a sim because we're supposed to do a sim. So we'll just air quotes nobody can see we'll just make a sim that's all we're supposed to do right yeah exactly let's pretend oh god i think once you get into this you start getting people ask you to do a presentation or you're involved in different conferences and this and that and this last year especially 2022 i think has been the year of people reaching out to me because they want basic information they want to know how to do it. Somebody's sending them an assessment rubric with reliability and validity and telling them to do this and set this up. They don't know the basics. So as I've thought about this as my own teaching, my own reflections and the questions people are asking me, bring me to a needs assessment. So I think that's what it is. And I mean, I've seen such a change in how we do what we do. And remember the early days, if you guys were with the early days of Lair at all, if you could program a handler, you were a rock star, man. Like that was the highest level of simulation performance there was. Or we went through this phase where every scenario had to either end in a code blue or a transfusion reaction or both. And maybe a shoulder dystocia too. Because I used to joke that sometimes people have babies and it's not shoulder dystocia. Some people do get blood transfused and they don't have a reaction. I, you, I've got afraid students thought these things were happening all the time. And this is where I start thinking about needs assessment in the alignment of the knowledge of how people learn and where does simulation best fit in. We're not just doing this for the sake of doing it because we have a fancy piece of equipment we want to show off. It is thoughtful and purposeful. And that starts with a needs assessment. But I will take you back to my aha moment on this. It was at the pediatric simulation conference. It was actually in Toronto in 2019. And I went to this debriefing workshop. And the facilitator got asked a question about the usual question about when people aren't responding. And instead of giving that usual response, he said, maybe the scenario wasn't right for them. And right there, that entirely framed my practice as a simulationist from that moment onward. And I got thinking back to when I first got my sim man, first year nursing students, they may have been in clinical one month at the most, no more than that at that point. And the faculty member drew up this scenario that was diabetic ketoacidosis. Those kids didn't know what a pancreas was. They couldn't have pulled an insulin syringe out of a pencil case if their life depended on it, right? They should have been doing diabetic foot care. They should have been telling diabetics not to walk on the beach. We had no business doing that. Everybody was confused. It was a mess. You're like, this is a waste of time and students hate simulation. 
And you hear more and more of this. One of my colleagues, I was on the writing team for the simulation standard of best practice around pre-briefing. She had a great expression, ambush simulation. Let's throw all of our learners on the second day of their health professions program into an absolutely horrendous scenario just to see what happens. What is your needs assessment? Who are your learners? What do they need? What information do they have? Let's not forget too, simulation, if we're gonna go with Bloom's taxonomy, sits in that application box, right? They should be applying knowledge. This is not necessarily the time for new knowledge. If they can't interpret blood gases, you don't start running these acidosis scenarios. And then I'm sure there's people who can do it. I should never make blanket statements. But by and large, get a whiteboard, get some colorful markers and draw some arrows of pH and bicarb. Let them learn it, then apply it. And I think that's what it is. What is it you want them to do? One of my instructors at Drexel, what do you want them to know before they walk out the door? Anybody comes to my simulation space, I want to do this. And I'm like, what do you want them to know? Okay, why are we doing this? And then we can break it down from there, looking at different things that we assess for our learners. So I take it back, start with a needs assessment. From that, that drives learning objectives. You're in clinical settings, you're busy, you're trying to do quick things on different units. A quick objective, something specific, something measurable, never use the word understand, something, what do you want them to see? How do you want their practice to change? What do you want them to be able to do after they've had this experience? And one thing I always tell my course directors is what I have them do is look at their program, look at their course right now and say, what are they not grasping? Where are the holes? Yeah, And that is basically your needs assessment is figuring out, is it COPD versus CHF? Is it this or that? What what are the holes that they have? Yep. And expand your needs assessment from there. Because my latest joke is, mommy, where do Sims come from? And it's like, it comes from a... Needs assessment. And we didn't even rehearse that. That was our first time doing that. <laughs> so I know there's different models. There's instructional design models, curriculum development models. I believe anecdotally reporting. The most common one we seem to talk about in our business is Kern's six-step curriculum development model. Kern's first two steps. Number one, problem identification and general needs assessment. Number two, targeted needs assessment. So let's go back. Problem identification, general needs assessment. Easy one. COVID. Okay, what we got COVID, it's going on. What do we do here? Targeted needs assessment. We need our respiratory therapy students to be able to manage our ventilators. We need nursing students to know how to don and doff PPE. Okay, what do you need from there? So that overarching, the big problem, is there a healthcare problem? Okay, how is it currently being addressed? How should it be addressed? Even something bigger, our graduates in this program all need to have this competency before they graduate. Okay, targeted. Who are they? What's their backgrounds? What do they need? So really, if you think about it that way, get that big problem, big topic area, whatever it is, then go into your targeted needs assessment. So there's where you're going to be looking at previous training they've had, existing proficiencies they already have, maybe what barriers are you for this, attitudes about the topic, expectation of the knowledge and skills. What are their learning styles? What are their preferred methods? So that you're really making it relevant to our 
second year medical students preparing to go to this clerkship. Third year nursing students going to the acute stroke unit. Would you be saying that facilitate at the proper level of the student experience and the student yes. level? Yes. You want to challenge your students a bit, right? What's that uh, zone of proximal development? You want people to learn. We're not just in here to reiterate, but there's finding that balance between challenging them. They're going to take what they already know. Constructivism. It's a thing. I love it. Constructivism. They're going to build some new knowledge and add on. You don't want to drop them into these things where they have no idea. They end up confused. They end up, I think there is a generation of learners out there who hated simulation. I firmly believe we're still there because I've seen a lot of people where they think the whole goal of sim is to give them earthquakes and Godzillas and everything and horrible rain showers when really all they need is standard patient care. Well, first year students, let's do a code blue and two of the students will be the doctor. Why? Really? What is that doing for anybody ever anywhere? You know? I little on that one. I, I despise role playing with every fiber of my being, but making it, you can still challenge them. I don't want you to think that I'm saying, oh, we got to make something that they all know it'll be easy peasy. No, you want to draw on what they know. Okay, they've already had this unit on CHF and COPD. Let's bring them in and then we can add on. And with your debriefing, you're getting them to reflect. You can cover some more points, bring some more things out, right? So it's just that you're not throwing them into these. Interestingly enough, I was on a, uh, I told her I was going to quote her on this. The hospital-based section, SSH, had their meeting yesterday and our speaker talked about her OB simulation program. And she said she went to a unit, she was going to do a malignant hypothermia scenario. She got there and quickly realized nobody knew what dantrolene was, let alone how you mix dantrolene. She quickly pivoted did a skill-based session on mixing dantrolene, came back a couple of weeks later. So there's no point in going through this if people don't have an idea. We were doing, we're getting new higher RNs in the hospital. Okay, they all have to know the V-fib algorithm. They're new grads. I realized this wasn't going very well. You know what I started doing? And I, I got this from an article. All I remember, it was a hospital in Dallas. So somebody in Dallas gets full credit for this. And they did this little activity called walk the block. They went around each side of their crash cart to discuss everything that's on the crash cart, how it works, what's involved. Let's start with that, then work our way up. Yep, absolutely. To what happens in VFIP, right? So I guess it's just me. I mean, if you want to throw the word scaffolding out, needs alignment, whatever you want, making sure what you're doing matches what your learners need. It's like you said, not every pregnancy or delivery is going to be shoulder dystocia. If your students cannot do a basic delivery, why would we do the ex expanded stuff that they you know is so much more complicated? Well, Kim Layton did the Deborah Spunt lecture, was it at the NLN conference? And it's, it's on YouTube. And she was talking about, I believe the quote, and because I quote Kim Layton a lot because she's so awesome. Love her. Well, I think she said I could have teaching to extremes. So we're teaching everybody about epiglottitis instead of RSV. We're teaching everybody these extreme scenarios instead of what normal is. And I mean, that's a whole nother thing is give the students a list of lab values. Here, go critically think about it. Well, how do you critically think if you don't know what normal is and you don't know the patient's baseline?
And that's what we run into a lot is our simulation program is almost entirely experienced clinicians. We're not teaching students that have never seen this stuff before. Yeah. Uh, but even with us, we fall into that trap where we'll, we'll create all these crazy scenarios. And then the one that people struggle with more than anything else is, hey, we threw in a basic delivery or we threw in a basic cardiac arrest. ACLS is something that we've all had 30 times in our careers. Uh, and those those little easy things tend to hang people up more than the more advanced stuff. Because from, from my standpoint and working with my people, everybody's ready for the bad stuff, right? They're always looking for that. They train mm -hmm. on it. They think about it. They go, you know what? I'm a little weak on OB. So what do I do? I go study preeclampsia, eclampsia, shoulder dystocia. I don't sit down and go, hey, what are the normal stages of delivery? What is a normal childbirth or what does a normal pregnancy look mm -hmm. like? Uh, and so we're so used to being in that scenario where we get called into really nasty shit, truthfully, is really what happens, mm -hmm. that that's all we think about. That's all we study. That's all we focus on. And then when something that should be very easy gets put in front of us, we may struggle a little bit. Yeah. Right? And so we do see that quite a bit. So going back to, you know, kind of the original point of what we've been talking about, doing that needs assessment, where are our clinical quality indicators for the year? Where are we struggling as an organization? What do we know that we have issues with? And that's where the majority of our effort needs to be put. Exactly. What do people need? And your experienced clinicians. You want to make sure everybody has a good handle on the basic skills. And I think sometimes we leap over that to get to the other ones. But then, you know, remember I heard a speaker one time talking about BLS. It's good for 24 months. But after six months, skills start to deteriorate. So where does that leave the other 18 months? So shouldn't we be maybe looking at that? And like horses rather than zebras. The other thing, too, is if you want to put something in that's grand and gory and all the stuff, in an education program, that's great. But are your learners prepared to do it? I think that's, that's what I'm saying. Are your learners, that's fine. If you want to do that, have at it. But if your learners don't even know how to do a basic compression or how to use the bag and mask or anything, you don't jump right to that. It's a progression. What are your objectives? Which your objectives come from your needs assessment. So who are your learners? What information do they have? What is their background? Are they prepared for that? So you're doing with practicing professionals. What do they need to know? What's happening? What's common here? What are we doing? Again, you can do all those things. I'm certainly not advocating we don't do those things, but just make sure it's right for your audience. Absolutely. And we do. I mean, we throw some of those things in as well, right? And that's that's important, but making sure that not every scenario is a high-level, complete mass casualty train wreck. Exactly. Right. There has to be that varied, like, hey, we're going to do that, and then we're going to fall back, and we're going to do a few lower-level scenarios in places where we notice we're struggling. But if we have you know, one specific category where everybody seems to be a rock star, then yeah, we're going to push you a little bit harder. Yeah. David says this all the time and you've slipped on it pretty close, but you know, what are your learning objectives? At the end of the day, that's what matters. If we're meeting the objectives that those students need to be successful, that is where our focus should be. And if that is something that we can do at a very basic level, great. If it needs to be a little more advanced, that's fine. Uh, but meeting your learners where they're at is, is very important. Exactly. It needs assessment, learning objectives. And when I look back on things, things weren't going as well as they should have early in my career. I did not know these things right? It was this school of nursing back home in Ontario. Simulation was two days blocked off at the end of the semester. And those were the snow days. So we didn't have to use those days because classes were canceled because of snow earlier in the semester and they were free. 
okay, let's do some simulation today. And I always, I couldn't articulate. It was weird enough at the time, like 2007, 2008. They just come up with these scenarios that hung out in space. They didn't relate to anything. And I always knew I was uncomfortable with it, but I could not articulate why until I really thoroughly immersed myself in the study of this. Yes, exactly. Oh, what I heard him say was the scenario right for them. So Elizabeth, you talked about Kern's model, right? And using that to kind of shape our programs or develop curriculums. Yeah. Uh, is there a tool or a checklist or something that you would recommend? Or is Kern's that tool that you're using? Or do you have like a basic checklist? If somebody came in and said, I've never done, done an ease assessment, what can I use that I could just print off and get started? Do you have one that you re recommend for people? I think you can look in the Kearns literature and he's got some questions he asks. I will also refer people to the Healthcare Simulation Standards of Best Practice, the latest iteration from Anaxel, and the name has changed. I'll get on my soapbox now. These are not just for academic nursing, right? These are for everybody. They made a great effort of interprofessional teams writing these as well as representatives from academic and clinical settings. If you go to the design standard, there's 11 qualifiers in design, and it does talk about the needs assessment. So you can go into the standard, the needs assessment, and analysis of the underlying cause of concern. An organizational analysis, depending on the scenario and what you're doing, you may want to look at, at that. Surveys. What are faculty, your stakeholders, your learners? What is the College of Nursing in your state of province or, you know, the Royal Co College of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada or AAMC? What do they have? What are they saying you need to do with your learners? Some outcome data. You may have some from other programs, maybe your hospital. How long are we to first shock? Certain standards for your professions, for whatever bodies you're looking at. So that's just a little bit I took right from the standard. But if you go to that standard, the design standard, and in terms of this topic, marry it with the standard on outcomes of it and objectives. And I think you've got a pretty nice way to go. You can look at different needs assessment. I mean, in terms of the organizational one, the standard is the SWOT strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. But that's if you're doing some kind of organizational piece. But I think really looking at your learners, survey, what do we need? Hospitals, what are some of our benchmarks? What are things we're trying to accomplish? Are we trying to decrease CLABSI or CAUTI rates? Are, what are we trying to do? We're building a new cardiac cath lab. What do we need staff to have to go in those areas? So anyone who's listened to us for any length of time knows that we've, we've done stuff on the Anaxel standards before. In fact, when they were first published, we had Penny and Matt Charnetsky come on and kind of talk to us about them for a while. Just for those of you that are not familiar, aren't quite sure what we're talking about, we will link that in the show notes. We'll get those dropped down so you'll be able to go directly to it. But the other places you can just get on the Anaxel website. All of them are available for free. You can view them on the website or download them as a PDF and go through and use those. Uh, and they're fantastic. Yep. If you're visual, just get the infograph. Yes. They're nice, colorful, and at least gives you some bullet points to work with. But I think realizing the applicability, but I think for in terms of this topic, grab the design standard, grab outcomes and objectives, and those two will get you started. All right. So before we, I mean, before we close this out, if there's anything else that you wanted to get off your chest or you wanted to shout out about this topic or anything else in simulation, what else we got? I'll tell you, if you want to do another show, the other thing that drives me insane is lack of conceptual fidelity. That will absolutely send me into orbit. 
I, we had this faculty member. She wanted this scenario. Day two post-op patient. Day two. Needing a sterile dressing change. He was day two from a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Really? Most people getting their gallbladder out are home before we're home from work. And if somebody had a lap coli, let's say, it, and it was a lap coli, didn't convert to open, and is in the hospital two days later and needs a sterile dressing change of the little keyholes, there's clearly more issues with that patient than a first-year nursing student should be looking after. Conceptual fidelity to me, does this make sense? Not let's just throw things. Let's just make really weird lab values just to see what happens. Making sure that everything, it does this make sense? I spend more time sending things to different units and educators. And can you, does this make sense? Does this represent a patient that would walk through the door of the Brooklyn Hospital Center? Is this a care pathway that we would take? You know, not just making things up. But I think really no, making, think about this. Simulation time is valuable. We got more and more healthcare profession students in as many programs as we can now. We're wanting to put people through. Let's make sure we're making the experience as meaningful to them as possible. The other thing is too, is getting people who are doing the facilitating. Hey, I was a really good bedside nurse. I was really good when I worked in the lab. I'm tenure track. Therefore, I should be able to teach this really well. Takes more training, more education. You can't just walk into it. Not saying that they can't do that. It just takes more dedication. There's special skills and knowledge for being a really good simulation facilitator. I'm completely bowled over by the number of people getting their certifications in this last couple of years because places are recognizing we want people who've had training to do this. I think that's another big thing too is are people getting it? And I'm seeing all the people who've heard me speak or at different things and they emailed me to say, I need help. I need basic knowledge. Like, I don't know. Like I need help to get started. People want to do it properly. I agree. I don't think anybody is intentionally doing things incorrectly, right? No. This is a struggle in most places. I feel like a lot of times we have people who are good clinicians and therefore get promoted into education or simulation or something else. And a lot of times like that does cross over and you can have a wonderful educator, but even a wonderful educator doesn't make a great simulationist. No. And so it, no one is walking into the sim lab doing things wrong on purpose, screwing things up. They are going in there and they are absolutely doing their best and they just don't know what they don't know about simulation or how it's supposed to be used. Exactly. Hey, I went a lot of years not knowing a lot until I did that Drexel program. I can remember like the first couple of assignments and readings. I was just like gobsmacked at what I learned because I'm like, oh my, that's why that was happening to me. You know, you don't know. And, and then start to talk to people and do more and more. And really, you know, looking at things like I was never a theory person. Never, never. I struggled with all that. But now, I mean, Miller's Pyramid guides so much of what I do. What level of the pyramid are we at? What are we doing here? If we just want no's, simulation is not the place for us. Looking at what we're doing, what we want to accomplish here. Simulation's fantastic. Don't get me wrong in all of its forms, but it's not the answer for everything. Absolutely. Right? Again, they need to interpret blood gases. Not necessarily the answer. And I think, too, you get into this didactic is bad. Didactic is bad. Sometimes a really well-delivered lecture 
can accomplish a lot too, depending again, what your learners need and what your objective is for them. One of my favorite things that I've been talking about lately is mass casualties. I love a big old mass casualty exercise with a bunch of people and a ton of things and all that. But you know what you can also do that's just almost as effective? A tabletop exercise, gamify it, and it's easier to do. There's less moving parts, and it's a lot of the logistics of it. Because an MCI, let's be honest, most of it, yeah, you have that five or ten seconds of patient care. Uh, are they alive? Are they breathing? Da da da. But then it's logistics. Who's prioritized? Who needs to move? How do they need to move? It's brain power more than physical skill. And when we're when we're looking at things that are more non-technical skill or knowledge based, we don't necessarily need the sim equipment or the sim lab for that. Absolutely. Totally. No, it's exactly. I've been really into like how we're doing it, doing it the best ways possible. What do we, I can't remember if I heard this on a healthy simulation or something and I heard this a long time. Well, you should be able to do good kit simulation around a campfire if you need to. Yes. If you've got a needs assessment, you have your objectives, take a pillowcase, draw a sad face on it, put two twigs in the side of it for arms and away you go. Mm-hmm right yeah we love the pretty stuff but you can do it like you said yeah. we need to do a needs assessment to see what fidelity where the learners are we need to do the needs assessment to see is that the equipment we need for that exercise and again i keep saying needs assessment because not just it's the title of this and why we have you here but that's where everything starts is do we need the seventy thousand dollar mannequin to do something you could do is gamified on a tabletop no, but then you could have other learners doing using that. I'm not saying we throw air mannequins. Like somebody said, you know, this is going to replace mannequins and blah, blah. No freaking way. Yeah. There are, we're just finding out better what, where, where things fit in and all that. It's like virtual reality, mixed reality, where those fit in, in addition, not subtraction. Yeah. It, I'm old. Eventually got to pick the stuff up and handle it and do it. Put the full, you can do it, play all the Foley catheter games you want. Eventually, you have to open the tray and pick the stuff up, right? That was uncomfortable. <laughs> so, did I answer your questions? I think so. Is there anything else like closing thoughts, anything that you want to say, whether it's related to this topic or anything else about what's going on in simulation right now? I think we, you know, we came through the virtual. We've done a lot. It's been a great year getting back together with conferences. I've always maintained that the sim community is the most collaborative and sharing group. You throw something out on a message board and at nine in the morning and by two o'clock, you got six people who've answered your question or with you guys and how we just meet and we know each other and you have this person. I would tell you a funny little story. My son, went down to he's in the middle of florida he got his cave diving and dive master certifications over the winter so he drove down to florida from our home in ontario and i mapped his route out and i'm like well you know what i know people in simulation centers everywhere along the way that he went so if anything happened i knew i could call someone and there's my son so you know what that's how i feel Everyone in the sim world, that's how I feel. It's a very small, tight-knit group. Yeah, absolutely. And and we see that even, you know, we go to you know, go to quite a few events, and it's not uncommon for somebody to come up to me to be, say, hey, so-and-so said I need to seek you out. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, it, you know, it happens all the time where people are like, hey, I don't know you, but I know so-and-so, and they know you, and they said I need to come talk to you about something. 
it's that two to three degrees of separation at most for everybody in the simulation community. I may not know someone directly, but I damn sure know someone who knows them. Yes, we're all connected. Six degrees. And they all know Matt Charnetsky. Yeah. And along the lines of diving, my son and I have had some intense conversations about how they do feedback, how they debrief after their dives, mastery learning, how they learn their skills, I, a whole thing of the things that they do. My son's mentor in diving is like, consider my feedback a gift to you to make you a better diver. And diving yeah. is one of those things you're not fooling around when you go in. I'll never do it. But I've learned a ton through him. You know, they're getting in there and they're going into caves and things like you really got to be secure and what everyone's knowledge. But we've had some great conversations. I keep threatening that we're going to present at a conference together, him talk about diving and me talk about simulation and the overlap of the two, the skills. So there's definitely an audience for that. So I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but in a past life, I ran a, a dive rescue organization for several years, for six years, actually. Oh, wow. You know, and simulation was a piece of that. So we did a lot of blackwater work where we couldn't see our hands in front of our face in the places that we're working. Yeah. Uh, and it's miserable. The you know, light's not going to help because the water in Oklahoma is just disgusting for one. But a lot of the work that we did when we were practicing our rope communication or working back and forth in patterns, some of those times that was a rope tied around your waist, walking in a park with your eyes blindfolded. You weren't actually in the water at all. Yeah. Uh, and whether you look at it that way or not, that is a simulation. We were practicing what we were going to do in a place where there was zero risk so that when we went into those high risk environments, we now had it down and we knew what that communication meant. We knew how to work through it. So I would attend that in a heartbeat just because I've been there and I've experienced it. Uh, cave diving is very much on my list of certifications that I want to accomplish at some point. But living in Montana, there's no way I could do it enough to maintain competency. He drove down somewhere northern middle Florida. Jenny Springs, most likely. That was it. Yes. That's the spot. So believe it or not cave diving in the United States is almost entirely focused around Florida, which everyone is not shocked by, and Missouri. That is the second location for cave diving in the U.S. Wow. wow. So very strange, but Missouri is second only to Florida. And the mob, according to Ozark. <laughs> Good show. Good show. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot between healthcare and that public safety diving and what he's doing, yeah. of course, isn't necessarily public safety, but there is a lot of crossover. And I, I think you guys are onto something there. I think you too, especially with you, you don't have a small personality. So I can only imagine your son probably got a little bit of that. I could almost see you guys doing a back and forth. Each of you shares half the screen. He presents some on diving and then you put the sim twist on it and back and forth. That would be a freaking ball and I'll sign up for helping and attending. I will tell him. All right. Well, Elizabeth, thanks again for coming out today. It's been a lot of fun to have you here and I'm glad everything worked out. This is awesome. Okay, I did the Sim Cafe and I'm like to Deb, when I look at the list of people you've had on and me, I'm like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> yeah, but you fit definitely with us for sure. And I think you fit with Deb too. She's another friend of the podcast for sure. Yep. She's been on us as well. Oh, she's awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys. All right. Good seeing you. All right. Well, guys, this has been another production of Sim Geeks podcast. We appreciate your time. Feel free to reach out to us through any one of a billion different avenues that we're on. If you have any questions for us or about Elizabeth, we'll make sure they get to the right spot. But we really appreciate you listening. Thank you. Thank you.